Welcome. We're glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. These weeks leading up to Christ's birth, we're taking a look at all of the miraculous events that surround the Christmas story. Christmas is the day that we are reminded that God is with us. It's the day we remember that God is in the birth of a baby, not born in the halls of power or into a life of luxury, but in an old barn to an unwed teen. The good news of Christmas is that God dwelt among us in the most unexpected way, and the world has never been the same. We're so glad that you're here and encourage you to attend in person if you're able. Our weekend services are on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Um, you know, today as we come uh, to the Magnificat, uh, Mary's song that we just read, um, it's been an interesting week reflecting on the person of Mary and who she is um, and, and her story. I don't know if you know this, but the song that Abby just sang so beautifully uh, has actually come under fire over the last few years. And there have been people pushing back against the message of this song. And primarily their frustration is that, of course, of course, Mary knew. Um, And in fairness to the critique, Mary did know. And it's very evident from scripture and from her story that she had a very clear picture and idea of what God was doing in the world through her um, and through the baby that she was carrying. Uh, But in fairness to the song, it's a a beautiful literary device that causes us to reflect deeply on the humanity of Jesus, his mother who loved this infant child so deeply and yet would watch him change the world and raise him to change the world. And this week as I've been thinking about Mary, she's a fascinating figure. If you just think about a a woman being chosen by God to, to carry God's only son, to raise him, to teach him, to guide him. My wife and I, we're currently in the midst of raising a a toddler who's a two and a half year old that feels like she's 13 um, and kind of in that independent space. And we've just thought like, what would it have been like for Mary to parent toddler Jesus? What would her style of parenting, how would she have guided him? And I think the beauty of the incarnation is the realization that God became the most vulnerable among us, an infant, a child that would one day change the world. Now, when you think of Mary though, I think what's interesting is often when she's depicted, uh, she's a very solemn contemplative person. And most icons or Madonnas or different artwork, she's often very round faced, very soft hands, very contemplative looking at her baby. She usually has combed hair and, and, and usually her robes are very bright and crisp and clean. And yet, I think it comes from a a good place of trying to honor this woman who carried uh, Christ. And yet, when we look at this song that we look at today and that we just read, that Hannah just read so powerfully for us, what we see is that, that Mary is actually much more revolutionary leader than she is quiet maiden. I mean, there's much more Katniss Everdeen, if you remember the Hunger Games at all in her, than there is just this solemn woman who's contemplating the changing of the world. And Mary's song, Mary's message is revolutionary at its core. It it is convicting, it's challenging. She's singing about tearing down the power structures of this world. And when you think of Christmas songs, it it, kind of has a very different message or tone than typically we think of Christmas. I mean, I think every Christmas song that we experience touches somewhere between nostalgia and sentimentality. And that's pretty much its range, right? And that's why we love those songs. 
And yet Mary's song touches on politics and social ethics and economics. And this is not really the lyrics you expect in a Christmas song. And yet this woman who carries Jesus has this announcement of the inauguration of a new kingdom. And I think it's important that we realize that this song is not just the ancient equivalent of a gender reveal party or something like that, right? Like Mary is proclaiming a message that she wants the entire world to hear. And it's fascinating, in this song, there are over 12 different references to different scripture throughout the Old Testament, showing us that, that Mary is someone who has been deeply formed by scripture. She knows the story of God. But, but beyond that, we even see that this is the longest speech by any woman in the New Testament, that Jesus' mother has a message for his people. And when you get into the message, it's interesting because it's actually a, a very dangerous song. I don't know if you know this, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is what he said about Mary's song. He said that it is the most wild, most passionate, most revolutionary hymn ever sung. And he's not alone in that assessment. I also don't know if you know this, but this song has actually been forbidden from being sung in different countries throughout the world. When the British Empire was colonizing the, the country of India, they forbid Christians in that country from singing this song because it, it came across as a threat to their sovereignty and their power. And there have been different dictatorships and authoritarian governments that have forbidden this song from being read or sung in their countries because they see it as a threat to their power. And the question is, what's so dangerous about this song from a teenage Jewish girl 2,000 years ago? Especially when you consider that most of the story of Luke, the, the first two chapters of Luke and this announcement of the Messiah who's come, most of these chapters really revolve around the theme of joy. I mean, joy is just written all over these pages and it's why we titled this series, this Advent season, Great Joy. Because Mary receives a, a news of great joy that she's gonna carry the child of God. Elizabeth, when she hears the news of Mary and greets Mary, she has great joy within her and pronounces blessing over her. The, the baby within Mary's cousin Elizabeth leaps for joy at the coming Messiah, the, the presence that he feels in Jesus. And the shepherds, when they hear the angels proclaiming that Jesus has been born, it's a, a message of great joy. So the question is, why is this song so dangerous? if it's contained within a story of joy. And even Mary in the first stanza of the song sings of her spirit rejoicing, the depths of her soul rejoicing in what God is doing. And the truth is, I think that the, the core of Mary's message is joy, but the, the things that she is finding joy in are also the source of danger that threaten the empires and power structures of this world. And so Mary sees great joy in what God is doing, and yet many people within the world receive it as a threat to the status quo. And I think that's the question before us today as we come to this song, this Magnificat, this, this song of Mary's message that, that she brings to us, is do we hear these words with the spirit of joy or with one of reservation? Do we hear it as a threat to who we are and how we live our lives? Because the, the truth is that the message of Christmas is often comforting, 
but it's also convicting. And I think what we see in the life of Mary in this song and this message and how she's structured is that she is, is bringing joy, receiving joy, finding joy in what God is doing in primarily three different areas. And each of these areas is also the areas that, that the world perceives the threat. And so Mary sees and finds great joy in what God is doing in God's character, in God's kingdom, and God's redemptive story. And those are the three things that we're gonna look at as we walk through this passage today. And so if you would, uh, please follow along as I read from Luke 1, 46 through 50. And I, I'm not going to sing her song because that, that would be terrible. No one wants to hear that. Um, just because I have a cold, that's it. It's not, no, I'm just kidding. All right, so starting in verse 46, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And what we see is Mary begins this song. She begins in a very different place than most of us begin our prayers or our songs of praise. And, and most of us often come to God with a, a request of, God, I need you to show up in my life. I need you to do something for me. And if you think of Mary's situation, there's really no one who was more deserving of requesting something from God. And yet she comes to God offering praise and exaltation, praising God for his character. I mean, if you think of her circumstances and her situation, a, a poor, unwed teenage pregnant girl living under Roman occupation, living in a time that was dangerous, and yet she doesn't, if anyone has reason to request something from God, it's Mary, and yet she begins her song praising God for his character. Mary finds deep joy in God's unchanging character. And there's really three attributes that she pulls out of this, this song about who God is. And the first is that she sings of God's might, that he is a mighty one who is doing great deeds with his strong arm. And any time in scripture, God's might is referenced. It's often a, a reference to God delivering his people, God's willingness to fight for his people, God's willingness to show up when his people are being oppressed or in situations that are, are harmful to them and delivering them, saving them. And so she's praising God for showing up in his might to save them. Picture stories like the Exodus of God showing up in immense power to save his people. Mary envisions in this child she is carrying a second exodus. But she also sings of God's holiness, his, his immense otherness, that his perfection, his moral purity, his essence of life. She, she sings of his separateness, that, that he is completely beyond our understanding and our circumstances. But she doesn't see God as some impersonal force that doesn't care for his creation or for his people. She also calls out God's mercy and she sings of how God has seen the humble state of his people, that he hasn't looked away to their plight and to their, their strife. And then God's mercy shows up and what we see is the, the cosmos shaper moving towards the world in his power and holiness and compassion and mercy. I love the way that one poet phrases it. He says, uh, his name is Michael Longley. It's a very short poem, but he says, the cosmos shaper has come down to earth 
and Mary is counting his fingers and toes. That is the incarnation. That is the character of God. That this immense, powerful, mighty, holy God comes to us in the form of a baby and a teenage girl in the Middle East. You see, I think Mary's example to us, the way she reminds us that our joy is not dependent on our circumstances, but on God's character, is one that's so easy for us to forget. I mean, if I'm honest with you, I feel like I'm in a season where I'm just kind of hoping to get to 2022. Like if this year could just end and my family could make it to the end of this year, healthy, happy, whole, we're just kind of limping to the finish line, it feels like. And if I'm honest with you, the circumstances in my life often rob me of joy. The the circumstances in my life I allow to dictate my joy. I I might be alone in that, but I'm guessing many of you, the the things that you are going through cause you to, to dictate your joy. And Mary reminds us humbly and gently that our joy is not found in our circumstances, but in God's unchanging character. And again, when you think of the circumstances that Mary was going through, I mean, mean, we know from scripture that she was one of the poorest people walking the face of the earth. In fact, after Jesus is born and they have to offer a sacrifice for the the child being born, they they only are wealthy enough to give the bare minimum of what the temple requires, two doves. They have no money. And we know also that, that Mary being an unwed, pregnant, teenager is a very, very dangerous situation. We find out later from the gospels that Jesus, he encounters women who who are considered sexually promiscuous and they are taken by mobs and violence and Jesus has to stop them from murdering these women. I mean, it is not a safe situation for Mary. She is living under fear of how people will respond to her. And to make matters worse, I don't know if you've ever had those seasons of life where it feels like God is not present, not active, and you're just questioning and wondering, God, where have you been in my life? What are you doing in my life? The people of Israel have been living under that for 400 years. As Larry mentioned in the first week of this series, it's been 400 years since they have heard a prophetic word from God. And so you can imagine Mary receiving these messages from angels like, God, do you even still speak this way anymore? Is this really from you? And just the questions and and faith and doubts that she must have in those moments. And to make matters worse, she is living under occupied territory, under the Roman Empire, one of the most brutal empires to ever walk the face of this earth. I mean, if anyone's circumstances could rob her of joy, it's Mary, and yet she proclaims the goodness of God and his character. The reminder for us this Christmas season from Mary's message is that our joy is not dependent on our circumstances, but on the unchanging character of God. And so Mary finds great joy in God's character, and the question for us is, is God's character something we can find joy in? And if I'm honest with you, I mean, if I'm really honest, even saying that phrase, it feels trite and cliche. Like I know that some of you are going through incredibly difficult seasons, seasons of darkness and depression and anxiety and frustration. And just saying, hey, just find joy in God's character and it'll be fine. It feels incongruent. 
But what we see is, is Mary's joy is not just in God's character, but it's anchored in something even deeper than that. It's anchored in the way God is at work in the world. Because not only does she find joy in, in God's unchanging character, but she also finds joy in God's kingdom, God's upside down kingdom. This is what she goes on to sing in Luke 1, 51 through 53. She sings, he has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble and he has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Now this is the portion of the song that the empires and powers of this world don't want to be sung. This is the, the part of the song that, that comes across as a threat to their power and their rule and, and their justice. And Mary is singing of, of the poor being lifted up, the humble being exalted, and, and the powerful and the rich and the wealthy being torn down. This is where we see this revolutionary leader singing and proclaiming of God's coming kingdom, coming in her unborn son. As N.T. Wright puts it, when Mary sings this song, she is singing of Jesus, the one-man apocalypse, the person where heaven and earth meet and nothing will ever be the same. See, this song, this danger of this song and the status quo of our world, the, the challenge that it presents is, is one that we have to be careful not to spiritualize. I think sometimes when the Bible talks as Mary's talking, we have a tendency to say, she can't really be talking about economic structures or the poor. She, she's probably just talking about our spiritual poverty and the ways that God will show up and deliver us from that. And, and hear me, there is clearly, clearly spiritual deliverance that happens in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the challenge for us in Mary's words is that, that she is proclaiming a threat to the way the world operates, a threat to the kingdoms and parties of this world, and saying that when Jesus comes on the scene, nothing will be the same again because his kingdom will outlast them all. It, we can't spiritualize it if there have been countries in this world that have forbidden it from being sung. Clearly there's a, a threat and so this message is both political and spiritual. This declaration Mary makes of this coming kingdom is a threat to every kingdom in the world of all time. But what's remarkable about what Mary says God is doing is that he is, is sharing concern for the poor, that the kingdoms will be toppled because Jesus will care for the most vulnerable in our world. I love the way that, that Reverend Ben Kramer put, puts it. He says, it's quite the fragile God who needs political power to preserve and enforce their will. But it is quite the powerful God who partners with peasants, is born in poverty, washes feet, heals the sick, advocates for the oppressed, and is unjustly killed and still changes the world. And the question for us is, is that good news to us? Is the pronouncement and proclamation of God's coming kingdom, this upside down kingdom, is that actually good news? I, I think some of us at times need the gentle reminder that, that Mary is offering, the compassionate reminder that our joy is not found in possessions or position, but in God's kingdom. 
See, I think there are many of us that, that we fall into this trap of thinking our wealth or our status will provide the joy that we're looking for. I've been struck this past year. I don't know if anyone has listened to this. Um, has anyone heard of the podcast, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? It's been a podcast that's been put out by Christianity Today over the last year, and it's, it's kind of documenting the story of Mars Hill in Seattle that, that kind of split apart and fractured um, about seven or eight years ago. Anybody heard this podcast or listened to it? Okay, a few of you. Um, it's been a fascinating story because at, at the heart of this story is a pastor who, who sought power and, and, and status and wealth and the fracturing and the way that it really splintered and the devastation and trauma that it caused for his church. And what's been, been so striking to me about this story and this situation is that it is really easy, I think, for the church to say, oh, it's, it's people outside of the church that struggle with power or possession or position. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, the church can be just as guilty of allowing ourselves to fall into the temptation of relying on worldly structure and power and systems to obtain the things that we want. And Mary's reminder for the church and for the followers of Jesus is that God's kingdom does not work that way. That the might of God's acts does not come through seeking power and position and wealth, but through an unmarried teenage girl who carried the child of God. I think the other challenge of, of this portion of Mary's song is that it, it really demonstrates, the, the whole song demonstrates God's concern for the vulnerable and the poor among us and that his people should, should live out this ethic where we also care for the poor. It's why Waterstone every Christmas Eve does give an offering to those who are most vulnerable, a medical clinic for people who don't have access to medical care. And yet, I, I think sometimes the church struggles to know who are the vulnerable that we're supposed to help. And I, I just want to take a brief examination of the story of Jesus and some of the ways that, that God calls us to care for the vulnerable, not just because that's his heart and what he cares for, but because God chose to be the most vulnerable among us. And as I read some of these demographics or some of these, these groups of people, they might prick your ears and you might think I have some sort of agenda, but my heart is, is deeply to call the church to the faithful ethic that Mary is proclaiming. You see, to make these things a little more personal, in the, in the Christmas story, we not only see God's willingness to care for the vulnerable, but that God himself becomes vulnerable that we care for the vulnerable because Jesus was vulnerable. And so Waterstone believes, and, and I would say that, that we are called to care for the unborn, that Jesus calls us to care for the unborn because he was a vulnerable embryo. Jesus calls us to care for the refugee because he was a vulnerable political refugee. Jesus calls us to care for the poor because he was a vulnerable homeless person. Jesus calls us to care for the racially marginalized because he was a vulnerable brown-skinned man who faced racial marginalization. Jesus calls us to care for vulnerable women because his mother was a vulnerable, unwed, pregnant woman. See, we don't always get this right. But I believe that Christians, when, when we are at our best, we believe 
that the most vulnerable act of love in human history was the cosmos shaper coming to us in the form of a vulnerable embryo attached to a woman's uterus. When you think of the incarnation and the vulnerability that Jesus enters into for our redemption and for our salvation, that is where our heart has to flow from and our care for those who are most vulnerable among us because God was willing to be so vulnerable. He calls us to the joy of caring for those who are vulnerable among us. Mary doesn't just find joy in God's character or in his kingdom. If you can believe it, it actually goes even deeper than that. And she calls us to joy, not just around God's character and God's coming kingdom, the upside down kingdom that's here but not yet. She also calls us to find joy, to experience joy in God's story of redemption. She is, Mary closes this song. She, she anchors the person of Jesus, this baby that she is carrying, firmly within the promises and story of God's redemptive plan. This is how she closes her song in Luke 1, 54 through 55. It says, God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. See, Mary closes her song with the answer to the question, Mary, did you know? She is very aware of what God is doing and she sees in this baby that she is carrying the proclamation of the fulfillment of all the promises of God throughout scripture. She ties it back to Abraham and the, the promise that God said, I will bless you so that you may be a blessing. I will, I will create in you a great nation that will change the world. And she ties it back to the ancestors who continually receive the promises of God that he has not forsaken us, that he has not forgotten us, that he has not left us in this mess of a world that we found ourselves in, but that he has moved towards us for redemption and salvation. Mary sees in this baby that she is carrying the fulfillment of all of God's promises and his stories of how he will show up again to redeem all things. I love the way that one author, Rachel Held Evans, she puts it, she says, to understand Mary's humanity and her central role in Jesus' story is to remind ourselves of the true miracle of the incarnation. And that is the core Christian conviction that God is with us, plain old ordinary us, God is with us in our fears and in our pain, in our morning sickness and in our ear infections, in our refugee crisis and in our endurance of empire, in smelly barns and unimpressive backwater towns, in the labor pains of a new mother and in the cries of a tiny infant. In all these things, God is with us and God is for us. See, Mary sees in this baby she is carrying the fulfillment of the promise that God would never leave us, that he would never forsake us, and that one day he would bring about the redemption of all things. Mary sees Jesus as the culmination of that redemptive story and those promises. 
And there's been an image that I, I came across a few years ago that, that has stuck with me. It's one of those images that I just feel has like been burned into my soul, but I, I feel like it captures this idea of, of this baby being the one that will bring about the redemption of the world. And, and some of you may have seen this image, but it's called Eve and Mary. And as you look at this image, you see Eve holding the forbidden fruit. Because if you go back to the garden where God created everything in perfection, and everything was the way it should be. And Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, trying to be like God and cause the fall of all creation. And you can see the look that Eve has of regret and sorrow as she holds this fruit. And yet there's hope in this image because she reaches out and touches the womb of Mary. And Mary consoles her as if to say that, that this is the baby that was promised. Because again, if you go back to the garden, God's first promise after the fall was that he would not leave us. His first promise that was even though the serpent led us astray, that, that a, a, a child would be born from the line of Eve, that even though it, it, it bit her heel, he would crush the head of the serpent. And it's the symbolism of all things being made right again that were broken. God pursuing sinners and broken things. And there's a, a missionary, a part of our church. His name is Michael Stalkup, and he's a, a poet, a phenomenal poet who, who's had different poems published in, in a lot of different articles and, and magazines. And, and I love the poem that he wrote about this image about the relationship between Mary and Eve. And I thought as we prepare our hearts for communion, it's the perfect uh, artistic way of summarizing this event of the incarnation in Mary's song. And this is what Michael writes about Mary and Eve. Then Mary took Eve's hand, which once had held the tender flesh of the forbidden fruit plucked fresh, defying God's command. In favor of the snakes, you'll be like gods. The snake had lied, and so she'd eaten, fallen, died. Watched all creation break. And yet within that curse had burned a seed, sown like a spark, that sang of freedom from the dark in veiled and pregnant verse. Eve laid her sin-stained hand on Mary and her hidden kin, and felt the promise kick within her womb, their God made man. The snake had left her dead, this child whose very name meant life. But here she touched amid her strife, the one who'd crush its head. That is the joy of Christmas and Mary's song, that God has not forgotten gotten us or abandoned us, but has moved towards us in all his might, holiness, and mercy. As we come to the table today, I think it's appropriate for us to remember that the story of Jesus Christ, his birth at Christmas, his death on Good Friday, and his resurrection on Easter is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It is the fixing of broken things and the redemption of of our sin. And so as we come to the table today, may we have joy in our hearts for what God has done for us.